Psalm 119. Follow along as I read verses 49 through 56. This is the word of God. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, but I have kept your precepts. God give us ears to hear his word. When I was a child, I absolutely loved the holidays. Uh, it's almost as if the entire year rotated around Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. I remember vividly as a child gathering with my family. We had this great big dining room. We'd have all the relatives over. My dad would carve the turkey up. Great memories. I remember as a child sitting on the floor with this gigantic Sears and Roebuck catalog. It was about the size of a phone book, uh, flipping through and circling what toys I wanted to receive for Christmas. I remember staying up late, midnight, on New Year's Eve to watch the ball drop on television. Uh, again, it was as if my entire year climaxed in these holidays. But a funny thing happened. As I grew up, as I grew up, my perceptions of the holidays began to change. I began to notice how Thanksgiving would just thoroughly exhaust my mother. And then we'd have plates and plates and plates of leftovers, most of which would wind up in the garbage. They stopped printing the Sears and Roebuck catalog, which was a sad day, uh, but it really wasn't that sad because as I got older, I increasingly got things like black socks for Christmas. Um, I guess that's the way life goes. And then on New Year's, as I contemplated the thought of staying up till midnight to watch some glass ball come down, it didn't seem so attractive because I knew I'd feel nauseous the next day. Life's like that, isn't it? As a child, you think the world's all flowers and bunnies and snowmen and warm apple pie, but as you grow older, you discover the world's actually a pretty rotten place. You discover that your loved ones, they get sick and die, uh, that your friends, they betray you, or even worse, they totally forget about you. You discover that your job that you were so excited about has become this monotonous drudgery, the rat race. You learn your favorite restaurant went out of business and nobody told you about it. You discover that you can't jump on the trampoline anymore because you know if you do, you'll have stabbing back pain for the next month. We discover as we get older that life is more often rough and tough than nice and easy. Now, when you discover that life is like this, you can and will respond in one of two ways. This is inevitable. You will respond in one of these two ways to just sort of the, the ugliness of life. Many people respond with cynicism, bitterness. They become jaded and scornful. I deserve better than this. This is not what I thought life was all about. This is what the majority of people do. They become cynical, bitter, jaded. I think we've got a sort of a glimpse of this in the book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon tries just about everything. He's got money, got power, got women, and he discovers that it doesn't satisfy. It leaves him empty. And then what does he say in Ecclesiastes 1-2? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? 
This is a first response to the rottenness of life, cynicism. You think, you know, life's pointless. It's bitter. It's painful. The problem with that, first, it ruins your life. Second, it ruins the lives of those around you. And again, many, many people respond this way. But there's another response, sort of the complete opposite response, and this is the response of grateful joy. It's to look at suffering, look at pain, look at misery, and to say, you know what, this is not fun, but it's not what I deserve. Things certainly could be worse, and in a very real sense, I deserve far worse. You look at the Apostle Paul, and this is very much his perspective on life. Paul suffered like most of us never will. Stoned, beaten several times, shipwrecked, uh, living basically on the poverty line for much of his life. He's eventually decapitated. And yet, what was his perspective? Listen to Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For Paul, who again suffered far more than most of us ever will, he did not become cynical and jaded by the pain and suffering of life. Instead, he became grateful, joyful. He could even say at the end of his life, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, when you see these two possible responses, and again, I'm warning you, you will respond in one of these two ways, either cynicism or grateful joy. But when you see those two responses, the question becomes, how can I cultivate this grateful joy? How can I avoid the bitterness, the, the, the cynicism, and develop that grateful joy that Paul had? What can I do? Well, this is one of the reasons why we're so thankful for Psalm 119. Psalm 119 does a lot of things, but one of the things that it does, it teaches us how to process pain, suffering, and affliction so that it doesn't make us bitter and cynical, but fills us with joy and gratefulness. And it's this very topic that we'll be talking about in conjunction with our study this morning. Now, it's with this that we introduce our next installment in our ongoing series through Psalm 119. Since this is an unusual series, and since it's been a long time since we studied Psalm 119, let me uh, just say a few things to put it in context. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible by a long shot. It is 176 verses which is actually significantly longer than several other entire books of the Bible. Uh, just to give you an idea of how big Psalm 119 is, Psalm 119 is twice as long as the book of Jonah, twice as long as Philippians, twice as long as Colossians, about four times as long as Haggai, and get this, it's about ten times as long as the entire book of Obadiah. So it's a big section of Scripture that we don't want to ignore. Now, every single verse in Psalm 119 is on the same topic. It's all about the greatness and the glory of God's Word, the Bible. Remember talking about this? The greatness and the glory of God's Word, the Bible. Why you need God's Word. Why you should study God's Word. Why you should meditate on God's Word. Why, why even in the watches of the night when you can't sleep, you should be turning to God's Word. 176 verses all about the greatness and the glory of the Bible. Now, for our purposes, what's important to note is that Psalm 119 is broken up into 22 stanzas of eight verses apiece. Uh, these correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but 22 stanzas, eight verses apiece. Now, believe it or not, we began this series four years ago. I don't believe time goes that fast. And originally, our plan was to study one of these stanzas once a quarter. Uh, those of you who have been around a while, you remember that was originally the plan. Study one stanza once a quarter and get through the entire thing in five or six years. But what do you think happened? I forgot. 
I forgot we were studying Psalm 119, which I guess can happen when you're only doing something once every quarter. So I checked, and the last time we studied Psalm 119 was actually over a year ago. But I discovered my error, and I'm recommitting myself to working our way through this psalm, approximately uh, one stanza a quarter, and we'll see if we can finish it within the next decade or so. Now, do you recall the purpose of Psalm 119? I mean, why would God include this gigantic chapter in Scripture? Well, here's the reason. It's to fuel your love for the Bible. It's as simple as that, to fuel your love for the Bible, to almost catch like a virus, a passion for the Word of God. As we study Psalm 119, read this psalm, digest this psalm, God's Spirit can use that to put in your soul the same fire for the Word of God that the author of this psalm had. So just for instance, this morning, if you find the Bible boring, dull, disinteresting, hard to understand, if you can't wait for 623 this evening, and I think the Bible is about as interesting as a phone book, you need Psalm 119. A couple more details about Psalm 119 before we jump into it. I know I've told you several times over the years that I think King David wrote this psalm. Uh, it sounds like King David. This is the consensus of most Jewish and Christian scholars that Psalm or that King David probably wrote this psalm. Recently, however, I was introduced to a different approach, the idea that this psalm was actually written by the Daniel of the book of Daniel. Uh, I'm not totally convinced yet, but it does make sense. If you look at the circumstances of the psalm, and even more so the vocabulary that he uses, and compared to the book of Daniel, there are some striking similarities. It's, a, it's kind of a, a theory I'd encourage you to explore, but it might be by Daniel. Now, one last detail about this psalm. Whoever wrote it, whether it be David, Daniel, or somebody else, it's clearly an individual who's been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promises of God. Please keep that in mind. If you think that the person writing this psalm is saved by good works, you'll turn it into kind of an oppressive legalistic code of do's and don'ts I must obey. No, instead, this person has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promises of God alone. What that means is that he's devoting himself to the Bible out of gratitude out of thankfulness that I have been saved, not in order to be saved. You see the difference? Keep that in mind, otherwise you'll misinterpret the entire chapter. Well, we come today to the next section, verses 49 through 56. And the first truth I'd like you to consider with me from this section is how God's people should expect to frequently find themselves in some pretty rotten stuff. This is reality. Not cynicism, reality. God's people should expect to frequently find themselves in some pretty rotten stuff. Now, in one sense, this is the overarching context out of which this psalm is written. This world is a place of sin and sinners, of pain and suffering, of sickness and disease, of persecution and harassment. And this comes up again and again and again in, in this psalm. Maybe read it this afternoon and notice all the different allusions to and references to opposition. For example, in verse 23, the author speaks of the rottenness of persecution. He says, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. In verse 28, he speaks of the rottenness of being sad and depressed. He says, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. In verse 87, he talks about the rottenness of nearly dying. He says, they have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. One of the points that he's making is that even the godliest people on the planet go through some pretty rough stuff. Never buy that lie of those TV preachers that if you just follow God, everything will be happy, healthy, prosperous. It's almost the opposite. 
You live God's way and the devil will do everything that he can to oppose you. Godly people enter through many tribulations on their way to the kingdom of God. And realize that whatever you're going through today, God's people have been through that many, many times before. And God in his grace has brought them out safely on the other side. If you look at the passage we're studying this morning, there are a couple of allusions to this rottenness. Look at verse 50. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Now, obviously, affliction is a very broad word. It can cover basically anything you don't want to happen to you. The word means a hardship, a calamity, a disaster. It could be anything from getting laid off at work to getting diagnosed with a disease to being persecuted for your beliefs. But regardless, the idea is the same. I'm experiencing pain. I'm experiencing suffering that I'd rather not experience. And again, that will characterize life for even the godliest people. We've got another reference to this rottenness in verse 51. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Here we see him talking about insolent people. Not a common word in English today, but these are arrogant people who brazenly break God's laws. They don't even care to obey God. They're just brazenly, flagrantly doing things their own way. They're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And as if that weren't bad enough, look at what they're doing. They're deriding me. And not only deriding me, but utterly deriding me. They're relentlessly, thoroughly bullying this godly guy because he's trying to live God's way. It reminds you of the way that Cain treated Abel or Saul treated David when he was in the wilderness. That sort of rottenness characterizes this life, even for the godliest people, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. Now, at this point, I want to deal with a question that you might be asking yourself. Is it legitimate to take the specific sufferings that this guy is experiencing and apply those to my sufferings? You know, obviously, we don't want to misapply the Bible, misinterpret the Bible. The Bible does not work through, uh, God doesn't work through Scripture when it's twisted. So is it legitimate to take these afflictions that he's going through and say that that applies to me and the tough stuff I'm going through? Well, I totally think it is legitimate to do that, and here's the reason why. It goes back to what the book of Psalms is. You know, remind, remind yourself, what is the book of Psalms? The book of Psalms was the hymnal of ancient Israel. The hymnal of ancient Israel, it then became the hymnal of the early church. It was literally sung by thousands, maybe millions of believers over thousands of years. And through that, God is, in, God is teaching these believers how to interpret what they're going through. What that means is that the Psalms are, by design, intended to be broadly applied. You know, just like we might take a hymn like, be still my soul, and apply it to my own soul. Or it is well with my soul, and apply it to whatever I'm going through. So also, God, by design, gave us these psalms so that we would interpret them, uh, interpret our life through them. You follow me? There's another expression of the rottenness of life in verse 53, and I find this fascinating. Verse 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Now, if you look carefully there, hot indignation, that's actually one word in the original, and it's, it's kind of hard to capture in English, but it's the idea of anger mixed with horror. Anger mixed with horror. When he sees these people brazenly breaking God's laws, it makes him angry. But he's not only angry, he's also afraid on their behalf because he knows that Judgment Day is coming, and if they don't repent, Judgment Day is going to be terrifying for them. Explaining well the meaning of this word, Jay Adams writes, Those who truly fear God 
have a sense of terror mixed with detestation as they think about people deriding God's word. They detest the attitude that such people take towards God by doing so, but at the same time, they are terrified when they think of those same people having to face God or face the holy God someday. I ask you, do you know anything of that sort of terror mixed with detestation that this passage describes? When you look around at our world and see people flagrantly disobeying God, flagrantly breaking his laws, when you say ponder something like the divorce epidemic or the redefinition of marriage in our common laws or the public acceptance of the transgender agenda, does that move you to both grief and anger simultaneously? Realize that if it does, that's a sign of God's spirit at work in your life. It's totally appropriate. In a way, I think this verse helps us in how we view the kind of rich and famous celebrities of our world. You know, the people that are on covers of magazines. Instead of envying such folks, coveting their lives, we should pity them. We should have compassion on them because very soon they will be in hell lest they repent, and then what good will their riches and power do? Pray, brothers and sisters, that God would give us this terror mixed with detestation on behalf of the lawlessness around us. And pray that God would move us to pity, to compassion on our fellow man, that we would get to know them and love them and share with them the hope of the gospel, the only hope that they have. So this then is the main point. God's people should expect to frequently find themselves in some pretty rotten stuff. Might be pneumonia, might be bullying at school, might be an accident with a drunk driver, might be being laid off at work, might be getting passed over by a promotion. I could keep going, but this is life this side of the fall. Therefore, it's only wise to prepare for it and anticipate it. Now you think about it, but this little truth is so helpful to remember, remember when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, it's so relieving to know that other people have been here before, my brothers and sisters in previous generations, and God has brought them safely out the other side. Most of the time they didn't die, and if they did die, and if their hope was in Jesus, God took them safely to heaven. And if God helped them, certainly he'll help me, if my hope's in Jesus too. But what's the worst thing to think when you're going through something rotten? The, the most debilitating thing is to think this trial is completely unique. My suffering's completely unique. Nobody's been here before. Nobody's gone through this before. You start thinking that way, and here's what happens. Maybe people can't make it through this. Maybe nobody can make it through this. Maybe I should just give up. No, whenever you find yourself thinking that way, remind yourself, no. God's people have been through this before. God's grace is sufficient. He'll bring us safely out on the other side. And just like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is also, by the way, why you need to be immersed in the life of a good local church. Just reason number 507, why you need to be immersed in the life of a good local church. You need brothers and sisters who have been through these things before and who can testify, you know, God's grace is sufficient. That cancer, that loss of job, that wayward child, yeah, it's terribly painful, and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but God's grace is sufficient. You see, that's part of what a local church is like. And maybe take from the uh, 2 Corinthians 1 reading, 
God comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort others. If you've been through some of this nasty stuff, realize that part of the reason God has brought you through that is to equip you to comfort others when they go through similar suffering. That's enough on that point, but don't miss God's people should expect to frequently find themselves in some pretty rotten stuff. Notice the second truth with me from this passage. Second, how God's people should fight to fill themselves with God's word in various ways, especially during rotten times. God's people should fight to fill themselves with God's word in various ways, especially during rotten times. Now, out of the midst of all this harassment, persecution, affliction, nastiness, you'll notice that this psalmist is doing everything he can to keep his heart and mind set on the Lord. And there's only one way to do that. The only way to do that is to keep filling yourself with Scripture. Keep filling yourself with Scripture, almost like a bucket with a hole in the bottom. You keep filling yourself with Scripture. Now, the different ways in which this psalmist does this are really interesting to notice. And let me point out a few of them for you. First, he claims God's Word as his own. He claims God's word as his own. Look at verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Now what I want you to notice there are the personal pronouns. These are fascinating. The Bible's not only the word, but your word. I'm not only a servant, but your servant. The word doesn't give hope in some sort of generic sense, but in which you have made me hope. You see that personalizing? It's kind of taking God's word and embracing it as one's own. God didn't just speak back then to Moses and Samuel and David and Peter and Paul, but no, his word is continuing to speak to me through today by the power of the Holy Spirit. On this point, Pastor Brian Borgman writes in his very helpful little book on Psalm 119. He says, the psalmist in verse 49 is taking his finger and pointing to the word, the promise which he has now personalized. He's not simply asking God to remember his word in a general way, but he wants God to remember the word he gave to him. The child of God does not look at the word of God as if it were a general word given indiscriminately. Rather, the attitude of God's child is, this word is mine, the promise is mine, it is for me. God has given it to me and he has made me hope in it. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, I'd encourage you to take that very same attitude toward the word of God. The Bible is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And what that means is that God is speaking to you personally. God did not just speak back there, past tense, to Moses. But today, present tense, by his Spirit, he's speaking to you. Now again, we obviously want to interpret God's Word accurately. We want to read passages in context and not misapply things. God does not work through passages twisted. But once we've done the careful work to read the Bible properly, to apply it properly, don't neglect that God is speaking directly to you. These promises are for you if your hope is in Jesus. You think about it, but what we've been saying here is really the essence of saving faith. The essence of saving faith is to take the general invitation of the gospel and to embrace it for yourself. It's to take that broad promise of Jesus, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you, give you rest. And it's to embrace that as your own. God becomes not just a father, but your father. Jesus is not just a savior, but your savior. That's the essence of saving faith. So I ask you, have you experienced that personal claiming of the gospel as your own? That personal embracing of Jesus as your savior? 
You'd be shocked how many people come to Christian churches, maybe for years, and yet have not personally placed their trust in Jesus. So is that you? Have you personally appropriated Jesus as your own? If not, today is the day you need to do that. Notice with me another way that he's filling himself with the Word. But a second way is to pray God's Word. Pray God's Word, to take those promises and to make those the kind of the structure of your prayer. You see this really all throughout the psalm, but look, for example, at verse 49. Remember your word, your servant, in which you have made me hope. Now, if you look at this verse, it's clearly a prayer. He's talking to the Lord, but he's referring to a previous word. What's that? A previous promise from Scripture that he's basing his prayer on. I'd encourage you to do this very same thing in Scripture. Use the promises of the Bible as kind of the skeleton for your prayer. So, for instance, you might pray, Lord, you have promised to work all things together for good. Right now, I'm having a hard time seeing that. I, I, I just cannot see that, given what I'm going through. So I am praying in faith, Lord, work this together for good, and give me the faith to believe that you will. You might pray, Lord, you know I've lost my job. You know they laid me off. But you have promised in your word to provide my every need according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Again, I can't imagine how you're going to do that, but I'm praying that you will. And again, give me the faith to believe that, even when I can't see it. This is one of the most effective ways to pray, to pray God's word back to him. To use those promises as almost the skeleton for your prayer. God has said, everything that you ask for according to my will, I'll do. Well, one of the best ways to pray according to God's will is to pray God's promises back to him. Notice another way that you can fill yourself with God's word. Reflect on God's word. Verse 52, reflect on God's word. Look at verse 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Now, this is one place where I think the English Standard Version got it entirely wrong. I love the ESV. I've preached from it my entire life. It's a great translation. I read it every day, but I have no idea why they translated it, your rules from of old. It's exactly not what it means. That term there, your rules, it actually means your acts of judgment. Your acts of judgment from of old. And what it's talking about are those times when God intervened in human history to pour out his wrath. So, for instance, when God destroyed the world in Noah's day with the flood, that was an act of judgment. When God poured out fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, an act of judgment. When God sent the plagues on Egypt, an act of judgment. Ultimately at the cross, when God poured out his wrath on Jesus in our place, that was the ultimate act of judgment. And here what the psalmist is saying is, I'm recalling those great events in salvation history. Those times when you acted in judgment to pour out your wrath, I remember those. And when I'm going through rough stuff, those bring me comfort. Judgment day is coming. God is going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with all the nastiness that's coming my way. And when I think about that, it comforts me. I think in one way, verse 52 is an argument for why we need to study the Old Testament. An argument for why we need to study the Old Testament. Because where are most of God's acts of judgment found? They're mostly found in the first 77.4% of your Bible. And by familiarizing yourself with those acts of judgment of old, by believing in those, you can take comfort now, even in this rough, rotten life. So read the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. It just might be exactly what you most need right now to help you through the rottenness of life. Quickly, two more ways to fill yourself with God's Word. Sing God's Word. 
Not only do we claim God's word for ourselves, not only do we pray God's word, not only do we reflect on God's word, but we fill our minds and hearts with it by singing it. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Now, there's actually a lot I wanted to say on this. I could have gone on for an hour talking about the role of singing in the Christian life. But realize, singing God's word can be one of the most effective ways to keep God's word in your mind as you're going about the duties of your day. You know, here's the temptation. The temptation is to do your Bible reading maybe in the morning. Let's just say, you know, you're doing it from 7 o'clock to 7.30. To close your Bible up, and then you go about the busyness of the day, and you forget all about the Bible. So for maybe, you know, 20, 30 minutes, I'm thinking like a Christian. For the rest of the day, I'm thinking like a pagan. So what can I do to fight that? What can I do to keep God's word kind of percolating in my mind as I'm folding laundry and as I'm mowing the lawn and as I'm making copies? Well, one of the most effective ways to do that is to sing God's word. Singing it will keep it front and center in your heart and mind so that even while you're going about the busyness of life, God's word is there. This, by the way, is why you've got to be very careful regarding the music that you listen to, the singing you listen to. Music and singing, it kind of temporarily possesses you. You ever thought about this? The music and the singing we listen to, it kind of temporarily possesses you. It takes over your thinking and your feeling. Therefore, we've got to be careful. Carefully limit the secular music you listen to, especially if it's got ungodly messages in it. Listen to good, doctrinally sound music. Uh, and honestly, not just Caleb all the time. Caleb will make you feel warm and fuzzy, but there's not a lot of doctrinal depth there. Memorize classic hymns, good psalms, and sing these to yourself throughout the day, for that's another great way to fill yourself with God's Word. There's one final way that he's filling himself with God's Word. And I wasn't quite sure how to word this, but I'll say it this way, and hopefully you'll catch what I'm getting at. But don't put God's Word on the shelf when life gets tough. Don't put God's word on the shelf when life gets tough. You persevere, especially when the circumstances are telling you not to. Look at verse 51. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. The thought there is the insolent are deriding him because he's keeping God's law. But that's not going to phase him. It's not going to prevent him. He's going to keep going deeper into God's word, even when others are trying to prevent him from doing so. Same thing, verse 55. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Now, it's interesting there. There's debate over whether that night is literal or metaphorical. Is it literal night, like, you know, 2 a.m., or is it metaphorical, like the dark night of the soul? Good arguments can be made either way. But in one sense, the point's the same. There's never a time when it's not proper to turn to God and to think on his word. Whether it be at 3 a.m. or whether you're in despair, both are great times to fill yourself with the Word of God. And it seems as if when you pull these strands together, I most need God's Word when I most don't want to turn to God's Word. You understand what I'm saying? When I most don't want to turn to God's Word, whether it be because I'm getting persecuted, harassed, whether I'm too busy, whatever, whatever that's when I most need God's Word. Because here's what happens. Life starts getting stressful. Life starts getting busy. The temptation to neglect the Bible skyrockets. There seems to be almost a direct proportion there, in proportion to how busy, stressful life is getting. To the same degree, I'm tempted to neglect the Bible, to put it on my shelf. I start thinking, you know, I'll come back to the Bible when life calms down. 
you know, well, maybe things aren't so stressful and life's not so crazy. I'll come back, but, but just for this little time, I'm going to put the Bible on the shelf. Now you think about that, but the problems with that kind of thinking are manifold. First, life rarely slows down. And maybe when you, you know, you're retired or something like that, but life rarely slows down. What's more, that entire way of thinking, it assumes that I got the natural resources within me to handle what's coming my way. In a way, it assumes I can handle this stress better without God's Word. Yeah, God's Word, it's great, and maybe it's fine for people with nothing else to do, but I got to handle life seriously, so I'm going to just put it on the shelf and handle this in my own strength think about it, that's blasphemous. No, actually, the opposite is true. To the degree that your life is stressful, to that degree, you need God's Word. To the degree that you're going through rotten stuff, to that same degree, you need to dig down into God's Word, claim it as your own, pray it, reflect on it, sing it, and persevere in keeping doing that. And don't put it on the shelf. There's an old saying about Martin Luther that... Uh, might be apocryphal, but it, it's kind of fun to think about. He said, I'm so busy, I need to spend three hours in prayer today. Remember that? I'm so busy, I need to spend three hours in prayer today. It's that sort of thing with the Word of God. My life is so stressful, so painful, so dark and hard right now, I need God's Word even more. I need to go into it even more. Brothers and sisters, fill yourself with Scripture, and even more so as life gets tough. Lest you try to do all of this on your own and you make a complete disaster of everything. All of this is simply how God's people should fight to fill themselves with God's Word in various ways, especially during rotten times. One final truth. Notice with me lastly how if people will persevere in filling themselves with God's Word, despite the rottenness of life, They'll receive priceless blessings. We're almost done, but consider with me. If God's people will persevere in filling themselves with God's word, despite the rottenness of life, they'll receive priceless blessings. Now, there are actually several blessings mentioned here, but for the sake of time, we're going to talk about one. And that's this one, comfort. Comfort. It's come several times in the, uh, what's this thing called? Service this morning. But if you look at your passage twice, he mentions comfort as a fruit of turning to Scripture. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Same idea, verse 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Now, what's the idea of comfort? Comfort is one of those words that's easier to describe than it is to define. But the idea of comfort is strengthening. Strengthening. Somebody or something is pouring strength into you. If you want a good illustration of what comfort is, imagine you've broken your leg, you've fallen down, you can't get up and walk. But then somebody comes alongside of you, puts their arm around your shoulder, kind of lifts you up, puts their, your arm on their shoulder, and helps you walk along. Can you picture that? That's, metaphorically speaking, what comfort is. And what God is saying here in his word is that if you'll fill your life with scripture, in the nastiness of life, I myself will comfort you. I will come alongside you and strengthen you and enable you to keep going. In recent years, for one reason or another, I've found myself somewhat infatuated by World War II. I had several relatives fight in World War II. Great uncle got killed in the Battle of the Bulge. But one of the things I've studied in conjunction with that 
is how so many of the Christians in Germany compromised with the Nazis. Uh, it's really a shameful chapter in church history, but they wouldn't speak out against Hitler, wouldn't criticize the Nazi party, uh, just kind of went along with the reign of terror. But there were some Christians who did oppose the Nazis, true believers, and probably the best known of these is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You've probably heard of him. There was another guy, not so well known, named Martin Niemuller. I don't speak German very well, so I probably mispronounced his name. Uh, one of these faithful Christian pastors spoke out against the Nazi party. He wrote that famous First They Came for So-and-So poem, which you may have heard before. But he spoke out against the Nazis, and eventually they arrested him, and they threw him in the Dachau prison camp, which if you know anything about World War II, Dachau was horrible. Took everything from him, clothing, books, pictures of his family, but for whatever reason, they let him keep his Bible. And I want to read to you what he said after he was released. He was in Dachau for, I think, seven years. But after he got out, this is what he said about his Bible. He said, the Bible. What did this book mean to me during the long and weary years of solitary confinement? And then for the last four years at Dachau, concentration camp, the word of God was simply everything to me. Comfort and strength, guidance and hope, master of my days and companion of my nights, the bread which kept me from starvation and the water of life which refreshed my soul. And even more, solitary confinement ceased to be solitary. You see, that's the kind of comfort God is offering to you if you will fight to fill yourself with Scripture. God himself, the almighty creator, will strengthen you. He'll hold you up. He'll inflate your weary soul if you'll but cling to his word and fill yourself with it. Now, I don't know what rottenness you're currently going through. We could probably go around the room and share different ways in which life is painful right now. This is a life of suffering and evil. But one thing I can tell you for sure, God is offering to you this morning comfort. He is offering to strengthen you, and the conduit through which he'll strengthen and comfort you is his word. So will you take him up on that? Will you take advantage of the comfort, the strength he is offering to you? Will you open your Bible and sing your Bible and pray your Bible? And so be comforted and strengthened by God himself. Now to wrap up our time this morning, as I studied this section, I couldn't help but think about our Lord Jesus. Obviously, this is written, you know, 700, 1,000 years before Jesus. But as I read it, I saw so many almost allusions to Jesus coming forth. Uh, let me read it to you again and see if you can see Jesus here. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. I mean, think about that. Jesus' entire life was fulfilling Scripture. Always refuting the Pharisees. Scripture cannot be broken. The promises of Scripture gave him hope. Verse 50, this is my comfort in, your, in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Jesus knew that God was going to resurrect him after his death, and that promise brought him hope, even as he went through some really nasty stuff. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Does that sound like Jesus? You got the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they're harassing, mocking Jesus all through his ministry, and then as he's hanging on the cross, what are they doing? They're mocking him. He's calling on Elijah. Maybe Elijah will come deliver him. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. O Lord, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Think about that, verse 53. It sounds a lot like when Jesus encountered the money changers in the, te in the temple, doesn't it? 
filled with wrath and anger because they were turning God's place of worship into a mockery. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. That passage reminds me of the Garden of Gethsemane. It says in Matthew that after they ate the Lord's Supper, that last time, they sang a hymn. And then what is he doing in the darkness of night in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying, remembering the name of the Lord. And then verse 56, this blessing has fallen to me, that I've kept your precepts. Could Jesus say that? I think he absolutely could. We're told in Hebrews 12 that it was for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross. The joy of pleasing his Father. We're told in Philippians 2, the passage we confessed earlier, that he was obedient even unto the point of death, even death on the cross, because he knew that God was going to exalt him afterwards. Understand, brothers and sisters, in one sense, we will never perfectly obey this passage. Even on our best days, we will fail to fill ourselves with the word of God like we should. But the truth of the gospel is Jesus does fulfill this passage. He and he alone perfectly filled himself with the word of God. He was the word of God incarnate. He was so submissive to the word of God that he was willing to let his hands be lifted up and nailed to a cross for us and our salvation. And now he's offering eternal life to you if you'll but turn from your sins and trust in him. And that's why in conclusion, I invite you to trust Jesus right now. Jesus is the only hope any of us have of being made right with our creator. So child or adult, teenager or elderly person, trust Jesus today. If you've never embraced Jesus as your own, today is the day to do that. Trust him today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something I've said, want somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today and today be made right with God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you specifically for this ministry of comfort that you offer to those who meditate on your word. Help us to take advantage of this. Help us to fight, to find time, to meditate on your word, especially when life is rough. And as that happens, please give us grace to experience your comfort, your strengthening, so that we may then in turn comfort others. Through Christ we pray, amen.